Good morning. Happy Tuesday. Um, it is a great day. I had to come in to the purple room for a little bit today, so I thought I would just shoot the video from here. So I brought the travel edition of Neuro Coffee and it is perfect. So I've been going back and forth on email with uh, Eddie from Germany. Eddie's an osteopath in Germany. And we've been discussing how we would utilize half kneeling positions or split stance positions and how it would affect the orientation and behavior of the pelvis. So I thought I would shoot a video and sort of break down the half kneeling position a little bit more in detail than what we've been used to. And hopefully it'll answer some questions that you may have as to how you're gonna implement this in half kneeling or split stance activities to achieve the outcomes that you've been seeking. So I have my pelvis set up here on the stool in sort of a, a split stance orientation or half kneeling orientation so we can manipulate it a little bit easier and, and show you some of the positions that are very common in regards to execution of certain act activities in half kneeling or, or split stance or some of the things that you're going to see in your athletes or clients. And one of the most common things you're probably going to see is you're going to see people assume this half kneeling or split stance orientation with one hip higher than the other. And what I want you to recognize is that what you're typically seeing under these circumstances is that the pelvis is actually going to be oriented towards the downside leg, but it's also going to be positioned in a position of inhalation. So you're going to get extra rotation of both ilia and you're going to get counter-nutation of the sacrum. Now, what this does is it creates a descension of the pelvic diaphragm. So, so this is a very low pressure situation inside the pelvic diaphragm, which pushes some of the effort towards the extremity musculature, which is one of the reasons why you'll see people complain of quad tightness in a, in a split stance or half kneeling position, or they'll complain about, about tightness in the front of the hip, or they'll complain about anterior knee pain because they're placing more demand on the extremity musculature. This increases pressure and tension at the joints, and so that might be what they're actually sensing. If we want to create a more stable structure through the pelvis, we have to create a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So we need an overcoming contraction and concentric orientation of that pelvic diaphragm. And the way we do that is by leveling the pelvis actively. So for those people that are presenting with that one hip higher than the other, so they're, they're in extra rotation, what we need to do is actually push the front side hip downward. In doing so, we actually create an internal rotation of that, of that front side hip which moves the ilium into internal rotation, which immediately mutates the sacrum and starts to bring the pelvic diaphragm upward towards concentric orientation. As I push this side down, I pick up activity on the inside of the downside thigh, which actually opens the outlet on this side, which also promotes a concentric pelvic diaphragm. So now I have a much more stable structure that I can perform my half kneeling exercises in or my split stance activities. And this should happen as I move actively through a split stance or as I assume a stable position in half kneeling. Once again, for those people that cannot create this concentric orientation or this propulsive phase in half kneeling or in split stance, they will typically complain about tightness or pressure or pain. Now, if I take us to more of a side view, you can see that I probably have this potential orientation issue to deal with as well. If I have an anteriorly oriented pelvis, I have lost the relative mo motion and therefore I have no relative position change capabilities. 
To overcome the anterior orientation, I have to use the proximal hip musculature to capture the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur. If I can capture this position, then I can restore the relative position change that's necessary for me to capture the concentric pelvic diaphragm. This is going to allow me to be stable and comfortable in half kneeling or allow me to propel through my split squat. So let's take a look at these positions in half kneeling. So as I am resting here on my left knee, I can actually feel that my right hip is, is now higher. So that's going to be that inhaled position. So both sides of my pelvis are actually in an inhaled position and both hips are in ER. So for me to capture an IR position of the hip and a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm, what I want to do is I want to cue a downward position with this hip. So I'm not sagging into the hip, I'm physically pushing it down. So think about pulling up with abdominals on the left side and pushing the right hip down. Now what I've done is I've oriented the acetabulum so they're now both facing forward into an antiverted position which captures internal rotation on both hips. Now, here's the kicker. I have to make sure that I'm maintaining the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur first. If I don't do that, I don't get this relative position change and I can't capture the IRs. I'll stay in ER and those are the people that are gonna complain about tightness in the front of the hip, tightness in the quad, or knee pain on either knee. This is one of the reasons why this half kneeling position is so important, is because it's going to transfer to all of my split stance activities. If I cannot capture the maximum propulsive position in half kneeling, the chances of me capturing in a split stance are minimal. Keep in mind there are some clients that are not qualified to be in half kneeling, nor are they qualified for split stance activities. Your goal under those circumstances are to recapture the intentional anterior and posterior orientation of the pelvis. This assures that I can maintain position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur, which gives me the capacity to restore relative positions within the pelvis. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and It is perfect. Okay. So I'm kind of excited about today's Q&A. The question is going to sound a lot like <laughs> a, a, a lot like the uh, questions I typically get. and um, But it's going to lead us somewhere that I've been wanting to go for a while because we're going to be able to talk about some programming stuff that, that um, probably doesn't get discussed enough. Um, because we sort of get, have this, uh, this why and how question that's, that's going to come up. And so I'm going to dive right into it. Oh, by the way, I got some visual aids here. <clears throat> and then at one point in time, um, I'll probably actually take a screen capture because I had to draw a picture and I'll, I'll hold it up for the camera. I don't have my whiteboard here, obviously, because I'm at the home office. And, and, uh, but I'll give you a heads up on that. Question comes from Jimmy. And Jimmy says, I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about wide ISAs. So right away, it sounds like a typical question that I get. Um, that shows a sway back posture posterior tilt, where would you start with someone like this? So, so this is an, ex an extreme case and it's gonna give us a, a, uh, an opportunity to show how to move somebody out of this and recapture a lot of that, that full excursion of, of breathing and movement because this is really an extreme case. This is, this is somebody that is sort of at the end game of the superficial compensatory strategies that I talk about. And so let's create that representation first. I'm gonna grab the pelvis, as I usually do. So if I have a wide ISA and I have limited excursion of breathing, that means that my ISA and my IP are gonna match. So, so I'm gonna have an exhaled position of, of the pelvis. So the IPA is, is going to be wide. Now, 
to get to the position that Jimmy's asking about, um, under most circumstances, your, your, your wide ISA, wide IPA is going to have this mutated sacrum, and so I'm going to have this space posteriorly. So this allows me to be a good hinger, not a great squatter, and, and I can produce high levels of force. I use a lot of high-pressure strategies. Um, and, and again, so I'm going to typically have this orientation. What Jimmy's describing, though, requires that I have this final compressive strategy where I'm actually going to bend the sacrum down. So I'm going to compress this area. And under most of these circumstances, I'm going to lose both internal and external rotations. And so again, that's just layers of superficial compressive strategies on top of, of the, the normal archetype that's going to result in that. So I'm going to lose ERs and IRs. So I have very limited excursions available to me to use for activities uh, before I would hit a, another compensatory strategy. So if I was to take somebody with this, with this posterior compression that, that Jimmy's asking about, they won't even have 90 degrees of hip flexion available to me unless they want to compensate. So right away, I've taken a number of exercises off the table, so to speak, um, because I can't move them into this, into this position because they just don't have the capacity to do so. But it, while it is a limiting factor, it also points my programming into a very, very specific direction. And so um, I'm, I'm going to hold up my little graphic um, here that I, that I drew out for the, for the camera. I have two cameras, by the way. So um, I'm just going to hold it up there until I see it get visualized. So there it's clear in the little camera. And then it's there's the one for the big camera. So what I want you to do is to go ahead and take a screen capture of that. And, and again, so you have a representation. So you see the, the blue square in the middle is, is any direction that we want to go, but with limited excursion. And then you're going to see the red rectangle is where we're going to try to expand movement first and foremost. Okay, so when I have a wide ISA and I have this, this compressor strategy all the way up and down, for me to try to force a turn under those circumstances is very, very difficult to do. They have limited hip flexion, they have limited hip abduction, they have limited hip extension, and then all their traditional ERs and IR measurements are going to be limited. So I have to stay within this, within this small square of movement. So instead of a split stance type of an activity, I'm going to use a staggered stance. So, so my feet would be just offset. Um, and then I'm going to drive uh, a number of different reaching patterns or pressing patterns, but I have to use angles that are below shoulder level. So let me give you a for instance on this. So we would have a staggered stance, high to low cable press, which would keep the pressing motion below shoulder level, and I'm just offsetting the feet. And so I'm gonna gradually move into, into these turns because again, if I try to go too far into a turn, all I'm going to do is create this massive orientation of the whole system, which is not really a turn. It's just, it's just changing what direction that I'm facing. And I want to create the ability to actually turn and rotate. So I got my water balloon, so another visual aid today. And so I have somebody that's, that's compressed anterior to posterior. So this is looking down on somebody, and so they're compressed. So if I try to turn them too far, all I do is get this. And that's not really a turn, that's just a reorientation of the, the entire system. What I wanna to try to do is I wanna to try to create compression on one side, expansion on the other side. And if I can do that with my activities, 
that's going to actually start to restore my ability to create turns in these people and start to restore the rotations. And so if you go back to the, to the red rectangle, um, those are going to be activities that where I'm going to start to deviate from center outward, so, so to the sides. So I'm going to start with lateral stepping. So consider if I was doing conditioning with somebody like this, um, we'd be doing um, sideways sled drags, or I'd be doing suitcase carries, because what those activities do is they could create compression on one side, expansion on the other, compression on one side, expansion on the other. And this is how I'm going to start to improve the excursions and restore their ability to, to turn. Because once again, if I try to force this, all I'm gonna do is get uh, compensatory strategies. So staggered stances, pressing and pulling below shoulder level, lateral movements. So this is where your, your side lunges, your side split squats, your low step ups come into play because that's what these people need because they only have a limited excursion in their peripheral joints and so we have to take advantage of what they do have and then slowly progress them them out of that so uh, Jimmy this is this is such a, a, a great question um, if you're in the rehab side of things these are the people that you're going to want to put into sideline because um, we take advantage of gravity so if I put you on your side and you're, and you're compressed A to P what happens is and you can see in my balloon so I get I get all the guts falling down towards the bottom. And so that creates expansion on one side and compression on the other. So sideline becomes very important. I start to build people up from sideline. So now we're talking about immature oblique sits, mature oblique sits. Um, this would be something that you would progress eventually into side planks and such if, we, if we're talking about moving into to gym activities. So right away you should start to be thinking about how you're going to be able to write this program for somebody like this. It's not difficult to write the program. What is difficult is identifying the representation of what you're looking at first and foremost. And then the program kind of just writes itself because when you understand the needs of this individual, um, again, it becomes very, very, very easy to write. So hopefully that gives you some guidance, Jimmy. If, if I didn't answer your question sufficiently, then, then please do so. Oh, by the way, the uh, asymmetrical ISA element of this. No different than anything else. You just have two different representations. So you, so you have a, a shape change on one side that is opposed to the other. You're going to follow the same rules that we just talked about. One side's going to be able to go a little bit more anterior-posterior. One side's going to have to go a little bit more side-to-side, -side, but the rule still, still applies. So again, hopefully that answers your question. Everybody have a great Tuesday. I'm going to finish my coffee. Today's a big, 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 long walk, so I'm looking forward to that. Have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. This is a little weird for me because I'm actually recording this about two hours ahead of when I normally record because I got that kind of day. Um, got a lot of calls today, got clinic time, etc., etc. So I got to kind of cut to the chase. I'm going to do a, a question from, from Rachel. I'm actually only, only going to do part of her question um, because it was a really long question, had a lot of, lot of parts to it. But, but basically, uh, what Rachel's asking is, I'm having a hard time con conceptualizing anterior-posterior compression if an individual shows a posterior compression to anterior, so, so pushing from the back, um, they will lose external rotation uh, in the extremities. She says, in my mind, if someone's compressing posteriorly, wouldn't the muscles be concentrically right and wouldn't this lead to gains in external rotation? Okay, so this gives me an opportunity to talk about something. So what we're using is a representative model 
of, of movement in the things that I like to talk about. And it depends on, on what model you're using as to what your interpretation of what's happening would be. And so the more detailed the model, obviously the more options that we have. And, and with the one thing we always have to understand is that the model is not reality. And so if your model is less refined or if you're using a different model, then your interpretations will be different. And so let me grab the pebbles real quick. So if we use dead guy anatomy, which is what a lot of, uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, a lot of the information is based on, uh, we, we have this perception somehow that this sucker doesn't bend, twist, move the way, the way it actually does. And then we have this, this thought process that, that this hip joint is somehow fixed in space when the reality is it moves a great deal, it reorients, it changes direction. And so if I use dead guy anatomy and I say that um, I'm doing a, a cadaver dissection, I say these muscles are external rotators because when I pull on them, the hip does this. And so Rachel, in your model, you are absolutely correct. That's, that, that's what would happen. But I don't think that's as close to reality as we can get. So I think we can have a little bit more of a refined model. So if we think about a posterior compression, so a posterior compression would, would, would be activity of the muscles that go across this upper portion of the posterior aspect of the pelvis that push forward. And what that actually does is it changes the direction of the acetabulum. So the socket actually changes its direction. And so if I change the direction, so if I compress here and I change the direction of the, of the acetabulum, what happens is, is I pick up internal rotation and I lose external rotation. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these compressive strategies. So every compressive strategy either reorients or changes shape or has some other influence that produces an outcome. And the more understanding we have in respect of how this thing actually can move, so we have to refine our model. We can't use the dead guy anatomy as our representation like most books try to do. And then they try to resolve these things. And now we have this massively confusing model with multiple rules and, and no foundational principles. If we take the same concept up into the thorax, okay? Uh, where I have the traditionally upward rotation of the scapula. That is a posterior compressive strategy in the thorax. That reorients the glenoid and it produces an internal rotation element. So through that middle range of, of overhead reach, that's why that would become an internally rotated position um, that we would use as, as we talk about moving through, through inhalation to exhalation to in, inhalation. Again, we're talking about that posterior element so I, I appreciate this, this question so much because I know there's a massive amount of confusion as, as to why these things exist. What it comes down to is evolving your model, adding detail, layers of detail. You, it doesn't matter where you start. You're not right and you're not wrong. All models have limitations and that's the one thing that we need to understand. It's just how much detail can we superimpose onto what we already know. So, so Rachel, take what you're already thinking because you're not wrong under certain circumstances, but now you need to add to this model and say, okay, if I compress this now, what happens with an understanding a little bit more about what the options actually are um, within a little bit more of a realistic model. We're never gonna see reality. We always have to use a model because this is a really, really complex concept and when we talk about about movement 
And so hopefully that answers a little bit of your question. I, I apologize I had to rush today, but I got a lot of stuff going on this morning. You guys have a great Wednesday. It is the gorgeous one's birthday today. And one of the best things ever, she forgot it was her birthday today. So I love that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I married her. So you guys have a great Wednesday and I'll see you. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand. And it is perfect. All right. What a fabulous week. So this has been, been a great week. Got a lot done. Very, very busy, which is actually kind of cool considering the circumstances that we're all dealing with. So I'm feeling pretty good about stuff. Um, we did get delayed here in Indiana uh, a little bit more. So uh, we were planning on, on opening up IFS this, this weekend. Um, we're not going to be able to do that. So we got another couple week delay, but that doesn't mean we can't be productive and can't be successful. So let us rock on. I do have a question that I've been holding for a while. So that would be a great way to kind of go into the weekend um, because it, it's a little bit off the beaten path from what we typically talk about when we're talking about structure and behaviors of movement and such. And um, this, this question comes from, from Carmine and Carmen says, I uh, appreciate the content you've continued to put out during these times. So thank you, uh, Carmine. Uh, I have a question in regards to your model. George Box said, all models are wrong, some are useful. Uh, what would you say are the limitations of your model and how do the limitations of your model influence your decision making? So thanks, Carmine, for this. This is really, really good. And thanks for mentioning George Box because it is now standard operating procedure to mention George Box in every circumstance where we're talking about models because of that quote. So I love that quote. Um, so let's talk about this for a minute. So when we talk about the, the, the limitation on the model that I use, Carmine, the greatest limitation is me um, because I'm the human involved in this. And so because I do make the decisions and I do um, determine what I'm, I'm willing to utilize, then I become that limitation. And so, so one of the things that we have to understand about being human is that uh, we are emotionally driven. So people think they make, make decisions based on logic. We tend to make decisions based on emotion and then we superimpose logic on top of that to reinforce our emotionally driven decisions, which is, which is kind of like a, a neat process. But if you're aware of that, then that helps a lot. Um, we're also irrational, we can't see reality. And so we have to rely on modeling. So everything that we do, um, everything that we, we visualize or, or think we understand, it tends to be a model because the complexity of reality is probably too overwhelming for us to even recognize or understand. And so even like your, your vision, the, the things that we physically see is, is merely a modeled representation because it's just way too complex to take in that, that detail. Um, so as you said, all models are wrong. And, and so I understand that. And um, I would refer you to a, a, a mental model that is, that is very useful um, called, called the map is not the territory. So when we're talking about human movement, um, some of the, the models that we've used in the past are, are mere representations of what we think that we understand. So I make fun of dead guy anatomy a lot because one, well, it's, it's very, very easy, but it's also a, 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 a uh, somewhat useful representation is because there is some of that stuff that that does influence how we can perceive movement uh, to be created but we also have to understand that, that the cadaver is not the human so cadavers don't breathe they don't move 
they tend to be dry and and um not fluid based and so again we have to re recognize the limitations of that model and so when the map is not the territory um, what it means is is that is that we're using something to help us create a smaller more manageable representation of what the reality reality is so let's just use a silly representation so if i had a map of the united states that was actual size so one mile equals one mile not only would it be incredibly difficult to fold but um, it couldn't even be, I mean, it, we, we can't even create this, this representation. It would, it would be ridiculous. So we have to use a smaller version that is not the reality, but that is representative so we can manage the complexity. So that's what, what we're talking about here. Um, as a human, there are certain things that I value. There are certain things based on my experience, and there are certain things that I'm capable of seeing uh, that, that limit what I will be able to take in. So what I see as salient or what I see as important is different from everybody else. And so last night I ran a little social experiment on Instagram and I threw up an opinion, I threw up a graphic and I threw up a, an explanation and I knew as soon as I put it up there that I should expect to get some dissenting opinions. So thank you for those people that have the dissenting opinions. I truly appreciate your participation because you actually fulfilled my prophecy, which, which was that I was gonna get some, some blowback on that. So I knew it was gonna happen because people will only take in certain bits of information. So even if they were fully informed, even if they read the entire explanation of what I was talking about, they saw it through a limited lens. And so then they reacted emotionally and they responded uh, appropriately based on those circumstances. So that was awesome to see. So I, I, I do love dissenting opinions. They're, they're valuable opinions because um, even though they're incredibly wrong and misinformed and emotionally based, they are useful to help us check our own work. And so, so again, I do value that. And so then I have to take my experiences into consideration too. And so, so let's just say that you work with uh, developing athletes young developing athletes and then an, another guy works with high-level professionals and you're having a discussion you're going to speak through those lenses and so you might actually have disagreements as to what is most valuable in developing an athlete but you're only speaking from your experience and, and you're speaking from the information that you see valuable but this is why we see these silly arguments on social media about about certain things so uh, there was one on twitter not too long ago where there were pe people talking about return to play aspects and what you had to measure and what was important. And so you had a group of, of, of physical therapists that, that do the return to play conditioning. Then you had some strength conditioning coaches that, that, that do some of the, the, the end elements of, of that return to play. And they're speaking from their own experiences. And so of course they're gonna have disagreements as to, as to what needs to be measured and what needs to be valued. Um, if you branded yourself a manual therapist, uh, manual physical therapist, you're going to see through that lens. And so, of course, then, then your arguments are going to be based, based on that. Um, I have cognitive biases, just like everybody else does, that prevent me from accepting information. I also seek information to confirm my biases because I am human. That, that is just one of our behaviors. But again, recognizing those facts helps me sort of get over that to some degree, but I always know that that's going to exist. And, and so um, that's why I, I am such a stickler about avoiding um, the singular viewpoint. So I, I challenge people to not fall into a singular system because it, it immediately becomes a limitation because everything that you do 
uh, when, when you adopt that singular viewpoint is I will acquire a tool that supports that or I will acquire more information that supports that and, and you become more and more limited. It doesn't mean you can't be successful because there will be points and times where that viewpoint will be very useful, but then you've immediately limited yourself in, in your scope of application. So how do we overcome these? Well, one, recognize the fact that your model is not reality. You can't see it, you're just using a representation so it can't be right. Doesn't mean it's not useful, just means it's not right. But the recognition that, that you're not seeing reality um, lets you know that there is probably a better model that is closer to the truth. And so the goal then is to refine and seek out the truth and to continuously evolve your model. So don't get stuck. In, in, in one place when you're, when you're developing the model. Try to avoid the emotional reaction to opposing viewpoints and, and other models. Not all opinions are valid, and, and, and I totally agree with that, but we can leverage the opposition to our advantage. So again, if I get a dissenting opinion that I don't agree with, and I, and I recognize that they're just not fully informed, or they're ignorant, or they're naive, or they're just merely reacting emotionally, I can still use that to my advantage. I can still leverage that information to allow me to, to check my own work or, or allow me to identify it. Is there a gap in my reasoning? Is there a gap in my thinking? So I, so I do take those things into consideration, but the goal is to not react emotionally because once you do that, then you're immediately blocked from accepting any, any new information. Get comfortable with the gray areas, get comfortable with not knowing and understanding that, that the, the complexity that we deal with reduces our ability uh, to predict things. And so we're always playing off of probabilities, but our experience and time and, and influences allow us to narrow those probabilities over time, and that's how we get better. Um, I have friends that are really, really smart, really creative thinkers, and then I have, I have also friends that, that are not in the same uh, environment that, that I work in, and so I consider them my naive experts. So they're really, really smart people. And if I ask them questions, they can ask the questions that I wouldn't even think to ask. And so that becomes very, very valuable to have people like that. Um, I share information a great deal um, because I want the opposing viewpoints. I, I don't want, I don't need yes men. I, I just need people that, that, that are good thinkers um, that have other viewpoints and other experiences because I can't know everything. I can't be involved in every environment. And so I can't have the... The, all the answers, but other people have other answers that might be assisting me um, in, in evolving my model. Um, ultimately, what I look for when, when I'm trying to overcome these, these things is I'm looking for consistencies. So when I intervene or when I'm evolving a process or I'm asking questions, I'm looking for the consistency um, in the outcome because that's the closest thing that I can probably get to truth and, and reality. So I see the same thing coming up over and over and over again, then I, I, can, I can start to reinforce that in my model to some degree. But this is, this is what science is. So this is where we do the experiment. So we experiment, we see what happens. We experiment, we see what happens. The more times you see the same thing arising, so when I see that consistency, that's, those are the things that I start to intertwine um, and, and um, contribute to the evolution of the model. Um, and then finally, what I would say is, is um, remain patient. You've got time to evolve a model. 
but I say patience with a sense of urgency. So, so it's kind of like the duck on the on the pond. You know, you see the duck smoothly going across the water, but underneath he's kicking like crazy. And and so always working, always trying to evolve, but understand that that you need to be patient and and let some of this evolution take place. So hopefully, that gives you a little bit of a of a of a framework as to as to how I see this this whole model perspective. Um, I, I try to recognize my limitations, knowing full well that I am the greatest limitation on the evolution of, of, of how I model this complexity um, within the, the realm that I work or the, the world in general. And, and so, again, I hope that's helpful for you, Carmine. If it's not, please ask another question. I love this question. love talking about this stuff. So um, I will stop my rambling for Friday. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. All right, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual, yes. Okay, so um, quick question for a Friday. I got stuff to do, big day in business as many of you know who have their own businesses. Um, I got a message from Vic, and Vic had some questions about inversion. He said, can you discuss the utility of the inverted positions and what compensatory strategies would this be used for? And then he wants some examples. So the examples, I'm sitting behind the desk, so the examples are gonna be be, uh, descriptive of anything. And then maybe what we'll do is we'll we'll try to shoot a video and and throw up some of those examples um, in some other way, shape, and form for you, okay? So the thing that I want you to recognize <clears throat> is that um, not everybody needs to be inverted. Some people um, don't do well with inversion, and then there's multiple variations of inversion um, that that will be successful depending on the idiosyncratic physics of, of that of that person. And so, um, the, but the way that I describe the the utility of this is is with the toothpaste tube. And so, if I squeeze all the toothpaste into the top of the tube there, you can see that it's full. And so in cases where this would represent the, the, the top of the, of the thorax, if we have an anterior-posterior compression in, the, in the, the top of the thorax, you get a toothpaste tube that looks like that. So all the stuff gets squished down to the bottom. And what we'll see then is we'll see the limitations in shoulder range of motion if we're looking at this from the thoracic perspective. And in that case then, what we need to do is we need to increase the volume, the expansion in the upper part of the thorax. And it makes it very, very difficult because gravity works. And so gravity pushes air volume down. So so air is affected by gravity just like everything else is. And so if we flip somebody upside down to a degree what we can do is we can invert the airflow that goes goes into the lungs. And so if I take this person and I turn them upside down, this now becomes the bottom of the lung and it makes it a lot easier for that air volume to get pushed towards the top of the lung, which is now the bottom of the lung if I'm upside down. Now, the thing you have to be careful of is that certain types of inversion are good for certain situations and then they are actually in conflict with what you're trying to achieve in in other circumstances. And then more inversion is not necessarily better. So because of the way that the diaphragm is shaped, the way it descends um, in in many cases, 
for instance, if I take a wide ISA and I put them in some sort of prone inversion, I can actually magnify the problem under certain circumstances. Um, if I have somebody that has a, a extensive compression on the posterior aspect of the thorax, especially below the level of the scapula, a lot of these inversion techniques that require support on the elbows are actually bad choices because you're actually driving them into a compensatory strategy as you're trying to achieve the expansion, um, especially posteriorly. Uh, you, you won't capture it because again, there's, there's too much posterior compressive strategy on the backside of the thorax to allow the expansion. And so again, those are just bad choices. Um, you will, you, you'll see probably a greater success with prone inversions with your narrow ISAs under most circumstances uh, because again, because of the way that the diaphragm is shaped as it descends, it's just a more favorable strategy for those people. Whereas with the, the wide ISAs, starting them in supine, and I've mentioned this before, under, uh, un, especially if you go to the video where I did the, the three strategies that I use on myself, because I am one, um, you'll see that I start in supine. So that's probably where you're gonna wanna start inverting people in regards to supine. Um, I would caution you against greater and greater inversion. What we're trying to do is just create a, a, a bias or a, a relationship where it makes it easier for that upper portion of the, of the thorax to fill up with air versus saying, oh, more is better because all you're gonna do is magnify the current uh, strategy that they're already using if you're too steep. So take that into consideration. I hope that's useful. So again, you've got prone inversions, you've got supine inversions. Um, and again, it's beyond the, the scope of this capability here of sitting behind my desk to actually demonstrate these things. But at least this gives you a little bit of a ballpark estimate of what you're up against when you're looking for inversion. Remember that, that we're all toothpaste tubes. If we're squeezing down from the top and, and pushing those forces down, we just gotta flip it upside down then squeeze from the bottom up and then we got a nice full thorax and then you get your shoulder range of motions back. So always uh, test, intervene and retest to make sure you're on track. Hope that's uh, useful for you, uh, Vic. And then it's Friday, enjoy your neuro coffee, get your business done today and we'll be rolling into a really solid weekend and we'll try to come up with some really, really good stuff up on YouTube this weekend. So I'll talk to you guys later.